Welcome to The Fine Line. I'm Liz Willette Daniels. And I'm Emily Gold. As longtime veterans of the restaurant business as well as wine importing and distribution, we wanted to start a podcast to learn how the people we admire balance hedonism and health. We wanted to explore people's individual journeys to pursue their love of eating and drinking as well as health and wellness, and we ask how they learn and grow in this process. If you are liking this podcast, please do rate and review. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to The Fine Line. Today, we are starting something new that we are really excited about. At the end of each podcast, those of you who want to can stick around for a few minutes for some mindfulness by Kathy Hoya. Kathy's a mindfulness teacher, co-creator of content for A Balanced Glass. If you haven't checked out that website, please do. And an advocate for compassion in everyday life. Today's meditation is about creative listening, so check it out and let us know what you think. On the show today, we are super excited to welcome Eric Asimov. Eric is the chief wine critic of the New York Times, a position he assumed in June 2004 after having covered wine with the Times Tasting Panel and in his tasting column for the dining section. Eric created the 25 and Under Restaurant Review in 1992, which was pivotal to exposing and celebrating the cultural richness of New York City in the boroughs outside of Manhattan. He has reviewed takeout food for the Times in his to-go column and has offered commentary on food and wine since 1999. He's also the author of How to Love Wine, a memoir and manifesto, and Wine with Food, Pairing Notes and Recipes from the New York Times, written with recipes by Florence Fabricant. His weekly column appears in the food section of the Times, and a collection of his columns is included in the New York Times Book of Wine. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, my gosh. We're so excited. Thank you. Um, So let's start out by talking about how you became a wine writer. You come from a long line of journalists and writers. So is this, did you always know you were going to be a writer? Um, No, but I always knew I was going to do something that required writing. And um, at least my, my father told me that. And so he essentially taught me and my sister how to write. My sister's been a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle for many years. What does she cover? She covers higher education. Okay, neat. Yeah. So um, I didn't didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I I was a, a started out hoping to become an academic in history. And I, I kind of chickened out of that when it seemed that liberal arts was not getting um, sufficient attention or, or financing in the 80s. Mm. And just really as a, um, as a placeholder to try to figure out what to do with my life, I got a job at a newspaper um, my father was a journalist, so that my my inclination was never to become a journalist. Sure, of course. <laughs> because my sister was going to be one, too. So I, you know, but I needed to make some money while I figured things out. And um, once once I got the job, um, I, I didn't actually fall in love with journalism, but I figured out that I could use um, this field to to express my my fascination and and passion for food and wine, and it wasn't a thing then. I mean, I feel like, I mean, it, it was a it was a, a a nascent sort of category. Am I wrong with, about yeah, that? This was, um, in the mid eighties, um, and this was a little bit before you started seeing you know, people referred to as superstar chefs, yes. celebrity chefs. And, um, you know, of course, there there was no internet then. There was no um, uh, blogging. And, and I mean, it never, I, I had always been fascinated with food and wine, but I wasn't, I, I didn't have a, a clear path there, at least not one that had occurred to me. Um you know, I didn't, I never thought about becoming uh, involved in, in cooking or winemaking. I didn't know anybody who, who, who did those things. So 
you know, the only thing that ever occurred to me was writing about food yeah, and beverages, actually. Did your love of food and beverages also come from your family? Um, well, yes and no. You know, my, my family was, uh, my parents were very much products of, of mid-century America. So, you know, there were, there were TV dinners and instant coffee and, and that sort of thing. But uh, my mother was also fascinated and she was in the generation inspired by Julia Child. So, um, you know, they would, uh, they and their friends would get together for uh uh, what they called gourmet dinners every month, and um, and my parents took me to to France when I was fourteen, which was really my first exposure to to great food, and and that's really what inspired me. You know, I, I still remember a, a, a restaurant meal I had in Paris at a at a, a restaurant that's still there, uh, Bistro Alar, hmm. and. I- we were just talking about Alar last night. Really? Yeah. <laughs> my my dad ate there a couple times as well. Well, that that was <laughs> it for me. I mean, I never had food that was just so um, uh, pure and and vibrant and and amazing. And it was just simple food, you know, entrecote and haricot vert and potatoes. And but it was just so good that I thought, you know, I have to have this experience again and again. And, and the same thing happened to me uh, a little later on with wine, where I, you know, I, I had become a, a wine drinker as a, as a college student, but it was mostly, you know, cheap swill, whatever we could afford, which, mm-hmm. you know, back then were, were big bottles, usually from the south of France. Minervois was a big name. Yeah. And, um and one one day when I was in graduate school I uh, in Austin, Texas, I completely by chance ended up buying a bottle of of nineteen seventy eight uh, Barbera d'Alba from Giacomo Conterno. Oh my gosh! A very and lucky. That is amazing. <laughs> yes. And that I mean, vintage, that's see, incredible. And, and it was so good that I, you know, it was another epiphany for yeah. me that. Wow, I, I have to figure out how to find wines like this all the time and and always. So you know, I kind of went into or or became fascinated um, purely out of self interest, so I could eat and drink well. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too tangential on this because it makes me sound like I'm eighty, but um, <laughs> you know, that is the thing that I'm sad about for people learning about wine right now who are younger because we could get a Quinterno and and still drink it. And even I remember buying Chave Hermitage and it was expensive, but it was like $60, you know? I mean? yeah. And so I just, <laughs> those things were in reach still, the greats, you know? You know? They, were, they were splurges, yes. but it was something that you were interested in. You, you, could, you could do it. Yep. And it's, you know, it's really sad. I, I, I've written about this within the last year about how this, the, the concentration of wealth yeah. in, in very few hands, you know, has had a, a, a dramatic impact on society in general. And just, you know, one of the, the least important ways is by putting, you know, benchmark historical wines out of reach of, of anybody but the very wealthy. Absolutely. But, you know, the, the, the good side is that we have so many more choices now True. and so many more great wines that, you know, you know, we can't really afford, um, you know, Grand Cru Burgundy anymore, but, but we can afford great Chianti or, mm-hmm. um, you know, any, any number of other um, fantastic wines. Yeah. yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. Before I went to study abroad in Europe, my dad sent me A.J. Liebling's essay, Just Enough Money. To basically explain to me that there might be something that was kind of too expensive that I really wanted and to just show me you can save up and prioritize having that thing instead of a few other things for that one day or that week, you know? Oh, I love that. That's one of my favorite essays. I love the Yeah. Well, let's talk about being a writer now. 
Well, I, there's got to be a lot of obstacles. I mean, it feels to me like, I mean, perhaps a bit less so when you were still first getting into it, but there's just, there are a lot of people who want to be wine writers and, you know, a lot of people probably vying for very few jobs. So how does one get into it? And, you know, what are the challenges and obstacles to getting over that threshold? Well, you know, I, I'm probably the last person to ask about this because my experience, my entry was was pre-internet. Hmm. And then, you know, you the path was clear, but the options were very few um, in, the, in the sense that, um, you know, there was a, a newspaper might have one wine writer. Uh, a lot more newspapers had wine writers in the 80s and 90s than than do now. But, um, you know, the the entry uh, level is much lower. Anybody can can write about wine. Um, it's the, the hard part is a getting people to pay attention to you and b getting paid for, right. for your work. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know the the I think the um, the measure is how compelled are you to um, to communicate because it's not just writing anymore. It's it, it, you know video, podcast, all, all sorts of of methods to um, to consumers, all, all, all sorts of paths. Um, but you need to, you, you have to need to do it. And that kind of, that, that impulse um, overcomes whatever <laughs> lack of, of monetary uh, reinforcement you're getting. And, and uh, hopefully if you, if you do it well and people begin to pay attention, um, uh, sources of income will, will reveal themselves. But it's, you know, it's not a sure thing by any means. Yeah, it can take a long time, I guess. Absolutely. And you have to have the exposure. You know, you you either have to have a trust fund or, yeah. you know, I think you mentioned, you know, or have wealthy friends or someone to kind of help you along the way while you're struggling to make it. Well, you know, that's the, that's the thing now that you alluded to before. It's... It's very hard to have full range of wine experiences unless you have, uh, unless you have some disposable income or you know people who do. Um, you know, wine is so dependent on on traveling and uh, trying all sorts of rare and expensive wines that it's just it, it's it's not open to to everybody who who um who wants to do it now we're talking about people who are who are are writing and you know real really there's any number of, of of experts and publications that focus on high-end wines and and it's not something that all writers need to do but it's good to have at least um exposure to those wines just to set a context Right. Um, so you can figure out where where everything else fits in. Yeah. Um, I would say one one other thing, just about getting into wine writing. Uh, I have been unbelievably lucky in in my career. I I got onto the staff at the New York Times, and um, when I showed uh, interest in, in food and wine there, I, I was able to get onto the, the staff of the food section there. And uh, I got uh, very interested in wine there when nobody else really was. Hmm. And so my predecessor, Frank Pryle, um, helped me out a lot. And, and when he retired, I was in a in a position to, to take over for him. And, you know, there's, that's a, a lot of serendipity there. Yeah. Yes. And I think that part of the magic of both food and wine is that it has the capacity to make each of us feel incredibly lucky in these moments, you know, getting to be around it at all is such a special thing. Yeah. Um, it like, you know, it feels like you're in this unicorn moment that you'd never want to forget, you know, but 
But also being able, I mean, you, Frank, was there for how long as you were? I mean, you you worked sort of under him and then alongside of him for a while and had that patience to yes. kind of know that, you know, you would have your your moment to be the one. Well, I never, you know, I was never anointed. And, you know, I, I spent the, the 90s um, writing um, restaurant reviews, mm-hmm. you know, Offbeat, uh, uh, Outer Borough, um, at least that's what we used to call places like Brooklyn and Queens yep. and the Bronx. Yeah. Um, you know, writing about uh, immigrant restaurants and and all kinds of, uh, of fascinating places in New York City, and I'm I sort of imagine that that's what I would be doing for a long time. Um, because Frank wasn't going anywhere. And, and um, I, I may have told you this story before, but right, right about uh, when I started working at the food section in 1989, um, Frank Prowl had, had been uh, originally a foreign correspondent, um, diplomatic reporter, and he was very kind of uh, old school. Um, he had also been writing about wine since 1972 because at that time he was the Paris, he was in the Paris Bureau and he spoke French and loved wine. So somebody decided he should be the one to introduce this subject to Times readers. And Frank always kind of grumbled about it, at least as long as I knew him, because he, you know, he thought he should be traipsing through battlefields in the Kuiper Pass or whatever. At least he said that. So when I first got to know him in 1989, I said, well, Frank, you know, why don't you just take me under your wing and I'll I'll trail you for about six months. You introduce me to people and then I can take over for you and you don't have to do it anymore and he didn't speak to me for, for about two months after that. So I, I, I realized that, in, in fact, he loved the job and that was all the front. <laughs> um, That's amazing. He was like the Thomas Jefferson of the New York, you know, in Paris. Uh, yeah. yeah. And um, so, you know, after that, I, I didn't, uh, I, I backed off a little bit and, and, and did wait 15 years, but... But you really carved that out for yourself. I mean, no one said to you, oh, well, maybe, you know, go check out the re- no, the rest of what New York has to offer. You really saw that there was something happening that was really special and made New York special and um, explored that. I mean, I remember in living... In terms of restaurants? Yeah, living through that time and reading about these places like Ali's Place in, in Queens and then going there and just having the time of your life. I mean, it was just... And you felt sort of like, I just remember feeling kind of intrepid and all, it was almost a little dangerous because, you know, you had to figure out how to get there on on public transportation because there wasn't Uber and maybe you'd get a cab home, maybe you wouldn't. I mean, the whole thing was just really an adventure. Well, for, for me, it was just a, um, an amazing introduction to New York City. I mean, I have lived in New York for a, a long time by then, but, you know, we all have our, our carved out pathways yeah. that we rarely deviate from. And so once I, I started um, reviewing this re- these restaurants, I was suddenly um, traveling to all different parts of the city and really sort of seeing it not as a, a job so much about food, although that was important, but uh, as about demographics and culture. And, you know, you, you get to know, um, uh, you know, very um, specific uh, immigrant groups uh, who, who never imagined that they were, you know, cooking for people outside of their, their cultural group, but were basically just trying to recreate um, their home environments. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was just um, I, I love the job. And I think it, you know, it's very much influenced me in how I write about wine, because, mm-hmm. you know, of course, the wine itself is very important. But the the culture of, of the people who produce wine um, is even more 
important to me uh, at the context in which, uh, from which these wines come from and, and trying to understand them and, and, and seeing the wines as part of, of a culture like, like the food and the music and, and so on, I think it, it is so much more interesting than just trying to, you know, figure out how many flavors and aromas you can detect. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was going to say we can't have this conversation without talking about diversity in terms of barriers to entry to be in this profession, but also, you know, who is being represented in the media. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've done such a great job of covering topics that people might not expect and making everything feel accessible and really focusing on history and culture. But um, I'm yeah. wondering if you could speak a little bit to what you've seen change. Well, um, certainly. In the last um, year and a half or so, the biggest change has simply been um, awareness in in people uh, in the industry. Um, my my discussion with people um, year, over the last five years or, or, or so, uh, I, I started talking to a lot of people in wine about diversity and in their minds, diversity meant, well, how can we get millennials interested in wine? (laughs) And, you know, this seemed really foolish to me because, you know, you've got uh, a changing demographic in the United States where um, people of color are making up a, a, a bigger and bigger percentage of the population. And yet the, this consumer base is being completely ignored. And, you know, mostly it's, uh, it, uh, I, I was thinking about it in the context of how we, how we talk about wine and who, who we, um, show in 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 uh in videos and and on uh producer websites and and who people who whom we're appealing to and the few um people of color who were actually in the wine business and you know i think uh, over the last year just the the awareness has built that in fact there are a lot more people of color in the wine business, and and they're just not being seen. Mm-hmm. And you know, not only do do we we have to um, to to see these people, but we also have to see the the potential consumers out there and see how um, they can be. Uh, uh, appealed to by by demonstrating that wine is not just for white people. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, I mean, it goes to the deeper conversation we were talking about with wealth being more concentrated. I mean, even before I left New York four years ago, it went from being a place where people could go afford to live there, artists and um to then they had to go to the outer boroughs and now the outer boroughs are even unaffordable to most people. And Manhattan has just become this sort of, I mean, it's a little different post COVID of course, but this kind of enclave of the wealthy and, you know, it's how do we bring that back to, you know, and I mean, that's just speaking about Manhattan specifically, but how do we, bring it back. I mean, it's gone almost so extremely the opposite to such exclusivity. So how do we then take it from that to to making it super inclusive, to your point? Sadly, um, you know, the pandemic may have a a play a big role in in doing that. Because, you know, in a sense, you could say that the culture of Manhattan had been hollowed out by you know, pandering to real estate developers yep. and, you know, creating a, a borough that, that uh, whose culture did not come from within, but was, was created to appeal to wealthy people who were not New Yorkers. Yep. And so, you know, you had all of these huge luxury 
skyscrapers that were pretty much unoccupied most of the time because they were just, you know, pied a terre for for uh, wealthy people who lived elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And that just, you know, destroyed the culture. Um, I've used the analogy between Manhattan real estate and Burgundy for a long time. And yeah. I, I mean, I hate to see the same thing happen in a place like Burgundy where the, you know, the, um, it becomes so uh, desirable and so overvalued that, you know, the people who created um, what's so appealing about Burgundy are kind of uh, uh, then locked out of the future uh, and it's and it becomes controlled by wealthy uh, outsiders who, who can afford it. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And price out and everyone else. What was so appealing in the first place? Exactly. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens with New York because what I'm hoping is all these young chefs, talented chefs who had to go to Minneapolis or you know Wisconsin or whatever it is because that's what they could afford maybe now can afford to come to New York and there will be a beautiful renaissance. That's my dream. I'm I'm hoping so as well. I mean, I think there's going to be a little bit of a fallow period as the, as the full meaning of the the pandemic makes it self felt. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, you know, people love uh, urban living Mm. and um, especially young people. And I, I, I think it will cycle back and, and people will, um, will, uh, again, be flocking to New York and, uh, hopefully real estate becomes a little bit more rationally valued and, and young ambitious people can, can afford it and, and open restaurants and, and bars and, and all kinds of other cultural outposts. Yeah. I mean, I kind of need people to flock back to New York if I'm ever going to be able to afford a house in Boulder. So, <laughs> exactly, that's the, that's the issue. Is the other places are getting expensive by everybody fleeing. You know, Liz, I think a lot about how lucky you and I are. We live in a beautiful place. We get to be friends and host a podcast together, yeah. and we have the occasional addition of some liquid luck. Oh, you mean tequila, don't you? I do. You know me so well. Top shelf only, please, like Suerte. I love Suerte. And it's not only authentically handmade at a boutique distillery, but it's also super affordable. It's top shelf quality at a school night price point. Yeah. And it's born in Mexico, but raised right here in Colorado. So we're also supporting a small locally owned business, which you know I love. I do. I think all of our listeners should get in on some of this liquid luck in their lives. You can use the code FINELINE15 at checkout on shopsuertetequila.com. That's FINELINE15 at shopsuertetequila.com. Or if you are here in Colorado, pick up some Suerte Tequila at Boulder Wine and Spirits, North Boulder Liquor, or the Boulder Wine Merchant. Maybe we'll all get lucky this weekend. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about balance and what you do for your physical and mental health? Yeah. um, Well, you know, it's, uh, I'm never one to complain about uh, being in the restaurant, a restaurant reviewer, wine critic. um, But it is a, you know, a physical challenge, because you have to consume a lot. So years ago, um, you know, exercise in Manhattan is not always the, the easiest thing, but I, I started doing martial arts at a dojo, Japanese martial arts, re- almost 25 years ago. Mm. And really, that's been my, um, you know, a backbone of, of my life for for all that time. Um, the, the training, the discipline, the, the community, the skills. Mm. Um, have just been a, uh, a, a wonderful um, um, thing for me to just, you know, it's, it's both, con- it's, it's mentally healthful, spiritually healthful, and, and physically uh, necessary. What martial art specifically? Um, well, I, I basically um, spent most of that time 
uh, training in uh, Kokushiru Jiu-Jitsu, Tomiki Aikido, and and more recently, I I took up karate. Okay. So I've been uh, cross-training in all three, really. I started a little late in life to pick up judo, which is maybe um, a little bit more physically taxing. But, um, it, but is judo judo is one of the few martial arts that actually has attacks. I feel like a lot of martial art, um, arts are about like movement and defense and diffusing situations. Is that is that true about judo? Well, um, yeah, I mean, judo nowadays is is more of a sport. Mm. And so, you know, it's a, a competition. And the great um, thing about um, uh, my dojo and, and my sensei is that he um, uh, organized both uh, jujitsu, which is kind of the mother Japanese art from which all the others um, stem, and, and uh, Aikido as uh, in, in the judo mode hmm. so that there are, are so that they are competitive as well. Hmm. Um, so you can use uh, them, particularly jujitsu as a, as a mode of self-defense, but um, can also uh, practice it as a sport. And, and this is a very contentious thing, particularly in the Aikido world where you have um, different styles and, and different facets. And, you know, the, the uh, most traditional people don't, you know, see it more as a, a, a spiritual practice rather than a, a competitive sport. But uh, uh, Tamiki Aikido was created by a guy who, who trade, trained with both the founder of judo and the founder of Aikido. And he sort of combined elements of, of both. And it's, it's wonderful. It's similar to what happened in the yoga world, I feel like. Yeah. Like it was very much only a spiritual thing with a physical element. And then it became a workout, which is also great. Like it's all good, you know, but you'll always have those schools that kind of are more purist and others who say like you shouldn't be doing sit-ups in the middle of a yoga class and <laughs> You know, whatever I mean, is works. There, is there anything that doesn't have its culture wars? <laughs> yeah, nothing. Nothing. Food, yeah. Martial arts, yeah. yoga. Yeah. What, a, what a pointless battle. <laughs> I know. I know. It's so funny. <laughs> I mean, Liz, I know you love meditation, and I also know you'll never say anything bad about something that is both spiritual and physically challenging. True. That's like the holy grail for me. <laughs> um, so how... Speaking is like that too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did you find martial arts? I mean, what was it that kind of... 25 years ago. I mean, it's not even yeah, common uh, now. Well, um, at that time, um, one of my, my older boy was, um, um, uh, uh, very young and he had a lot of energy and, and wasn't really interested in the t- sort of team sports that, uh, other kids were doing. And, um, I had always kind of nursed, nursed an interest in, in martial arts. And, and somebody had said, um, you know, that's a really good thing for, for kids, especially hyperactive kids. Mm-hmm. And um, it just so happened there was a, a, a dojo uh, virtually around the block from where I was living on the Upper West Side at the time. And so we went there together and, and, and I put Jack in, in a class. And, you know, the, the, this is very traditional dojo. So uh, most of the classes are, are completely mixed. Adults, children, men, women. Very cool. And I, I watched this class and I thought, wow, that looks like so much fun that I decided to to join in. And that became a, a wonderful uh, father son yeah. thing until uh, until Jack graduated from high school and, and went off and never looked back at it. <laughs> but, but how nice. Stopped. Yeah. How nice to have that thing for the two of you to do. I'm sure he'll be super appreciative later on yeah. that you got to have those years together. Yeah, I mean, I think I think he is. I mean, it's it's kind of um, it's hard for me to say it, but he just turned thirty yesterday. Ah. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Amazing. And you know, he might never he might have gone back, but his first year of college, he tore up his knee pretty badly, and, mm. and just it, it didn't happen. 
Injuries are so tough. We talk to a lot of people about injuries and how people cope. You know, it's such a, it can just stop you short in your tracks. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, it's hard to do martial arts without injury. I mean, I've torn my ACL, I've broken my nose. Um, You know, I can't, I last, (laughs) read the last thing that happened before the pandemic began. I dislocated a finger, which was uh, just a sort of a shock to me. Um, yeah, that's, it's just uh, part of the deal. Oh, well, it sounds like you have a pretty good perspective on it. <laughs> How have it's, you been coping with COVID then? Because obviously I imagine you guys aren't going to the dojo anymore. So no, I mean, it's martial arts is, I mean, you know, people sweating and, and breathing hard on each mm-hmm. other. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in New York, uh, gyms and, and uh, you know, where dojos are classified have not been permitted to reopen, um, at least under certain circumstances. Group classes are not permitted, but you can take individual lessons if, if you want. So, um, you know, a, a few friends and, and I have been, you know, training in Central Park once a week just to... Uh, to stay in shape. And it's a little bit different because you can't, you know, it's, it's not, it's non-contact. Luckily there's a lot of things, a lot of elements of martial arts that you can practice in that way. And because we, we're not, uh, we don't have our sensei with us. It's, it's been really kind of a, um, educational and that we're we're looking backwards and going back to basics and and you know um and and debating you know whether there there are certain moves that we're doing correctly and and um uh and and practicing those moves and it's you know it's just it's just it's really interesting to go backwards rather than forwards to to learn new things all the time actually a, um, a rare opportunity yeah. yeah yeah so i think you know in a lot of ways we've made the best of it but uh in january and february were um uh very snowy here in new york so uh, i basically i and and uh i i myself got covid at one point so uh last saturday was the the first time i had uh, gone back to our park training in a in a couple of months. And that was great. What was it like for you to get COVID that, you know, we're all, everyone in this field, I think is so terrified to lose taste or smell, not to mention uh, I mean, the risks to your life. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it was shocking to me because, um, you know, my wife and I both have um, uh, risk factors. So we, we've been like pretty hermetic for, for most of this year. I mean, as just doing everything uh, by the book, and and to to then get COVID on the tail end of things, at least it looks like it. It's the tail. We end. hope, yeah, right. It was, it was just such a, a a shock and a surprise, and um, you know, luckily, it was um, you know not as uh, I, I would say. Uh, we had mild cases. My wife, my wife had already had her first vaccine by the time um, I, by the time I, I shared my my Aww. infection with her. Uh, so she, hers was a little milder than mine. Um, I had a pretty rocky couple of weeks, but uh, and I did, uh, I didn't completely lose my sense of smell, but it, it's diminished and it still is. So I'm I'm working on on restoring that. Hmm. How are you working on restoring it? Um, it my um, my colleague uh, Tasha Alreo, who's a um, a restaurant critic in California, also got COVID a few months before I did and, and lost her sense of smell. And so she did some in-depth reporting and, and uh, eventually wrote a story and, and was on the daily podcast talking about this. And, and essentially what happens is that your um, olfactory, the receptors in your olfactory nerve shut off 
for whatever reason, the mm. virus turns them off. And you have to retrain yourself to, um, to open them up again. And you have to do that by, um, by consciously um, sniffing a lot of, of different things and, and, and keeping track of how you're, um, how, how you're doing uh, with the smells. Hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's pretty frustrating because as, as with all things COVID, there's nothing happens in a clear linear progression it's, it's full of ups and downs. And just as, as some days I thought I was getting better and then the next day would be a bad day. Um, it, it's the same with the sense of smell. Mm. Um, some, it, even times of day, some, at some point during the day, I'll, I'll be really uh, pleased with how I'm, um, I'm smelling things. And, and then I'm, and then I draw a blank with, with something huh. and it's, it's hard not to get frustrated and you just have to kind of power past that. I mean, it sounds, you know, like a more intense version of the beginning of starting out in the wine industry when you have to like <laughs> smell right. everything and be constantly trying to gauge and commit to memory what you're smelling. And, you know, you know in, a, in a certain way, it's like my uh, my year with martial arts going back to basics, sure. you know, really, um, um, just going back and and I I've started out with um, a lot of different spirits I just had which I just happen to have on hand and you know they're so aromatic mm. uh, Armagnac and, and Calvados and and Clarin and uh, and uh, you know rye and and uh, Madeira and, and not a spirit but a fortified wine and just trying to to you know, recatalog all of these aromas. And uh, again, it, you know, it's frustrated. It's frustrating sometimes in the morning, uh, uh, I have my coffee and, and I, you know, I, I feel as if I'm experiencing it in the full, you know, dimension of, of, of the, the richness of the brew. And then, you know, the next day it's like, oh God, I can, I can barely taste it. <laughs> mm. Wow. So, so it is, it's like calisthenics for your olfactory glands in a way. Huh. I, I think so. And, yeah. you know, maybe uh, some people have said they come back um, better than ever. This happened to me once before. Um, I, I had had um, some years ago after breaking my nose, uh, <laughs> I, I needed sinus surgery, and uh, after the surgery, I, I felt like my sense of smell was really diminished for a while, but then um, it just came back, hmm. and it came back better than it had been before, and I just remember the, the, the clarity that I experienced and, and how... Um, just you know how joyous that that was, and I'm hoping the same thing will happen, and and pretty soon I hope. Interesting. We are also hoping for. That I know for you. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd like to talk a little bit about you know back to back to wine stuff. Mm. Um, you know what is it that what is the message that you're trying to get out through your columns and through your books? Because I think I know what it is, but <laughs> I've well, um, you know my my hope is is to um, inspire people really to explore the the beauty of of wine in in all of its manifestations, not just the the great bottles, but the um, the lesser bottles too, the the daily wines that 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 we all drink when we're not instagramming some mm -hmm. you know, some rare and expensive bottle because uh these are really the 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 beauty and the backbone of of wine um and you know I, i'm hoping in 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 various ways to um kind of de-pedestalize wine 
rather than have it become be an object, a, a fetishistic object, it's just a beverage. It's mm-hmm. just something that's, um, you know, really enjoyable at base. It's really enjoyable. It can be a lot more than that, but, but, but just at that level, um, it, it can be great. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, um, writing for the, the, about wine for the times is, uh, for general interest publication is is an interesting experience because um, you know most wine writing is for a specialized audience, mm-hmm. um, and mine really encompasses uh, people who are interested. They just want to know what to drink with dinner that night, what to pick up on the way home. Um, all the way up to to collectors, people who know may know a lot more than I do about their um, small area of wine. So, you know, it's it's always I- interesting and a challenge to try to figure out ways to write that will um, engage that that full spectrum without alienating one side or the other. Mm-hmm. I think that's always been so nice about your voice, though, because wine in general tends to be a sort of an exclusive, um, you know, hobby for a lot of people. And you have always given that sort of democratic voice, like for the people, for everybody to be able to go find something regardless of their budget. And it, it really goes back to that line you found in food, like let's not, you know, it's very easy to focus on the great restaurants of Manhattan, but what about all the gems that are out there in the outer boroughs? It's the exact same thing with wine. Like, yes, Burgundy's amazing. I could argue the best, but, you know, what about Fleury, for example, which you wrote about recently, and and especially with those top echelons becoming so out of reach, it's more important than ever for us to to be able to shine a light on all the great wine that's out there. So, it's uh, you're right. I mean, there people are are so obsessed with 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 what they've heard or what they consider the best. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's just a very um, an American quality, but you know what. It, you can't always drink, um, you know, Hermitage or Cote Roti. And, and, and I love Saint-Joseph. Yes. And there's nothing, you know, it, it's just different. It's not worse. It's just different. Yeah. And um, it's school you know, night wine, as you said. <laughs> like, yeah, I call it school night wine. Well, you know, it, yeah. it goes to our whole wine industry and it, it, um, you know, we're talking about a different sort of diversity now, but for so long, um, uh, California, for example, you know, was obsessed with however many, the handful of grapes that they considered the best. So everything was either, you know, Cabernet, Chardonnay, or, or imitation, knockoff great Cabernet or, or, or Chardonnay. Um, meanwhile, you know, through the most traditional wine re- or historic wine regions, um, you know, you're, you're kind of bound by an appellation system, not only by an appellation system, but by a respect for the culture in which you, you grow up. And if so, if you are, you know, if you are in Doliani and making dolcetto, part of you might regret not being able to fetch the price of, of uh, Barolo, but at the same time, you love and, and respect uh, dolcetto, mm-hmm. and, and it has a place. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I, that's what I'm seeing more of now in, in the American wine industry, a younger generation that's not, um, you know, whose starting out point isn't, oh, we're, you know, I'm going to compete with the greatest wines in the world, wherever I'm, you know, wherever I am. Rather, you see people who say, I'm going to figure out what the best grape is 
in this piece of land and do my best job with it. And I think it's a much, it's a formula that results in much better and more interesting, more honest and pure wines. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think respecting the history in the area is such an important thing to remember and keep in mind and pursue as is letting each bottle of wine just be enjoyable. Yeah. You know, like I, you know, I love having a $20 bottle of wine that just hits me right at that moment. You know, it's like it makes me just as happy as some old rare bottle, you know? Yeah. Well, it's less work. You know, yeah. you're not going to church. You're not like <laughs> sitting there <laughs> focusing. You can just drink it, Yeah. you know, which is great. Well, yeah. And that's, you know, most of the time, that's what we want to do. Mm-hmm. We want um, we want a meal that's uh, that is tasty and appealing, not a nine course dinner, you know, prepared by the world's greatest chef, but uh, a roast a roast chicken or you know some something that is just wonderfully uh, uh, appealing. And and the same is true with with wine. You know, we don't we're not we're not drinking a wine each night and, and then, you know, trying to figure out, trying to break down the component aromas and flavors. We're just, we just want something that is, tastes good and is really interesting and goes great with the food and, and uh, facilitates a conversation. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. It's not about wine. Yeah. <laughs> so if you were going to write your 25 and under column now, what would that price have to be? I mean, it could not be because appetizers are $25 now. No, I mean, that, you know, I mean, how would we adjust that for inflation? Well, ideally, you wouldn't, there would be no price in the, uh, the, the column would not be bound by price. Yeah. Um, that was an argument that I had with editors back when at the inception of that column in, in 1992. And and I lost that, and and it became kind of ridiculous by uh, by 2004 when I moved on to my next uh, when I started writing full time about wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and nowadays, you know, um, pre pandemic at least, are we we no longer have a, a column like that that's bound by price. It's just. Uh, it, it's now called Hungry City, which uh, leaves you a lot of of latitude. That's good. <laughs> it would be it would be almost impossible at this point. I feel like. Wow. Um, of course, nowadays you could you know I mean you could use it to really create a, a strict uh, conception of of what you're what you're going to be writing about. But I don't think that would be useful for for readers, um, even if it is a, uh, you know, a challenge for the writer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess we'll see. Yeah. (laughs) So I wish we could sit here and talk about this stuff all day. (laughs) I know. Me too. (laughs) Right? This will just be a four-hour episode. Everyone buckle in. (laughs) Um, We'd like to end, though, with something that you're excited about for the future, personal or professional. Well, I mean, I, I think that um, personally, I'm very excited. Um, it's not happening yet, but I'm hoping I'm hoping by the summer that uh, we'll be able to travel again safely. Um, you know, and I, I want to see my family again, and and um, and uh, professionally, I, I want to. I mean, it's been really hard. Uh, you know, as a as somebody who's used to visiting wine regions and and meeting people and and learning things by by talking to people face to face and and uh, walking in vineyards and mm. and tasting in, in cellars and in restaurants and and things like that. Um, you know, I feel. I, I, that I've lost a lot of this educational input over the the last year, and I've had to compensate in other ways. Um, but I, I'm really looking forward to 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 going back, um, and I'm e- excited that um, the the people I know in the wine industry and in in the restaurant industry will. 
hopefully have a chance to do what they love best and not not you know be under the the tremendous um uh financial and emotional pressure that they they've been under for the the last year and that you know people can again make a, a living and and especially for for restaurants i'm uh i'm hoping i i'm not I'm not entirely optimistic about this, but I'm hoping that as the the business um, reconstructs itself, it it maybe can can build itself back better, to use the president's phrase, in a way that um, is more uh, rational, um, less exploitative, uh, less fragile for the workers, and and just makes more sense for for everybody yeah yeah here here <laughs> yeah i think that hopefully is what the beauty of this time will be that everybody had a minute to press pause and you know when we spoke to bobby stuckey a couple of weeks ago i mean even he didn't realize the fragility of his business and so i think there's been a big microscope on that and hopefully instead of just like getting back to a hectic pace they'll as you say, construct a little differently. So I think that's a great wish. It'll be interesting to see. I know, you know, so many restaurants in New York had to sell off parts of their wine inventory. And, um, you know, it'll it'll be interesting to see what the future holds uh, as far as wine lists and and, uh, sommeliers and, and, and so on. And, um, you know, somebody suggested to me recently that the great wine destination restaurants will no longer be in the urban center because the, you know, real estate is just too irrational. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see about that. Yeah. Yeah. I've thought for a long time that there should be some kind of, um, you know, credit given to locally owned businesses in towns that want to keep having locally owned businesses where the property taxes are so high or rent is so high, but I'll work on that over the next couple decades, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that might, that might be your next gig, actually. <laughs> no, it's, um, we all talk about um, the influence of special interests and, and money, dark money in particular. Um, I mean, a lot of the, the, the problems in the restaurant industry are, are, just symptomatic of more structural problems in society. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to, unless we grapple with those issues, it's, it's hard to see how restaurants themselves are going to solve things. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Well, this has been so much fun. And Such a treat. Thank you for sharing so much for, with us, for being so thoughtful. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. It was really nice to catch up with you. Thank you for having me. It was great talking to you. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And stay tuned for a mindfulness, a few minutes of mindfulness, if that's your thing. Uh, It's not too spacey. So if you're driving, (laughs) don't stress. You can still listen to it without uh, risking your life. Kathy did a great job. She did. And uh, yeah, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe or rate and review. Thank you. Creative listening. That's the first in this series of mindfulness tips for the Fine Line podcast. Think about the last time you felt someone was listening, I mean really listening, to you during a conversation. What a gift that was, right? Maybe they leaned forward. Maybe they tilted their head. Maybe they nodded or smiled. Maybe they made eye contact so that you felt and really felt like you were being both seen and heard. All of those nonverbal cues communicated that your counterpart was dialed in and present to what you were saying. They were mindful of your words. It was a gift they gave to you. They were also receiving something in return. By listening so intently and so mindfully, they were also by default listening creatively. They invited the flow of words and ideas you shared to spark some fresh ideas of their own. 
They injected some oxygen and some openness into the conversation. They activated their curiosity and created the space and the potential for something new. That's how to listen creatively. It's a gift you can give to anyone you speak to. It's also a gift where you'll get something in return. See if you can listen creatively to someone else today and watch what happens. Namaste.